This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This evening, session number three in our Growing in Christ retreat, we're going to take some time to meditate on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, the first 10 verses. And you should be getting the handout um, along with the space on the side with the main points that you can take some notes if you like. And uh, at the very bottom, you can jot down what you feel the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and then afterwards we can, we can share that. Okay, Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 10. Paul writes, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And tonight we're going to focus mostly on the first verse of this chapter because it's a perfect little it's a perfect little one sentence summary of the Christian life, I think. Following God's example as dearly beloved children. That's like a little gospel holiness in a nutshell. And I want to clear a danger away right at the very outset. The danger is that we, we read the verse backwards as though it said, become dearly loved children by being imitators of God. Right? We begin as dearly loved children and then out of that we begin to imitate God. And reading the verse backwards is like picking up a knife backwards. Right? If you, instead of picking up by the handle, you pick it up by the blade your fingers will be very sorry for your poor choice. It makes a big difference. The order in picking up a knife and a big difference in the order that we pick up this verse. Because you don't become God's dearly loved child after a lifetime of perfectly imitating him. Once you've hit your 50-year anniversary of being a very good disciple of Jesus, does God then say, okay, now I will accept you as a dearly loved child. At last you have earned this rank. Instead, the good news of the gospel is that God meets us in our failure, where we're very imperfect, very sinful. We're fathers of, we're children of the evil one rather than children of God. And God takes us into his family before we've done anything worthy. And in fact, a lot that is not just unworthy, but deeply shameful. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for the sins of all who trust him so that they might become God's children through the blood of Christ. 
And John 1 verse 9 says, To all who did receive Jesus, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when Satan challenges you, as he often does, like what right do you have to call yourself God's child? Look at all the things you did just today, all the horrible thoughts you had. You disgusting little scumbag. How dare you call yourself God's child? We point to John 1 verse 9 and we say, no, I have received Jesus. I have believed in his name. And God has given me the right to be a child of God. And because you're in Christ, you have as much right to call yourself a dearly loved child of God as the most advanced saint saint in the kingdom. In fact, you have as much right to call yourself a child of God as Jesus does himself. Not because of righteous things that you have done, right? But out of the sheer magnificent grace of God that takes us into his family. And what we're going to do together tonight is just to open up four aspects of what it means to be a child of God and how those empower us to truly imitate God and be like him. So to begin with, we have a new status as God's children through adoption. And the word adoption occurs five times in the New Testament, all of them in Paul's letters. And actually, the concept of adoption was totally unknown in the Old Testament. And it seems like Paul borrowed this concept from Roman family law. And um, it's really important we don't read our modern ideas of adoption back into the biblical text. It's not like Angelina Jolie going to Cambodia or Malawi to adopt a child from an orphanage. From an orphanage. Adoption in the Roman world was actually much more pragmatic. Because there was such a high infant mortality rate, it wasn't unusual for a family to be left without a male heir. And so to ensure the continuance of the family name, to keep the family line from dying out, the father would adopt a worthy young man. So it wasn't for the good of the adoptee. It was for the good of the father and the good of the family. It wasn't an act of mercy. It was an act of pragmatic taking care of your own family. And adoption was a very serious business. The young man, it was never a child, it was a young man, was now completely removed from his old condition and his old situation. His birth family surrendered all claims upon him. He officially would renounce the old household gods and adopt the new one. And all of his old debts were completely extinguished because now he was legally a different person. His old persona, in the eyes of Roman law, was now dead and buried. So imagine you've been adopted into a noble Roman family. And a few years later, you're walking through the marketplace in your town and some unsavory character from your old life grabs you by the arm and he says, hey, Claudius, it's me. And you would say to him, yes, but it's no longer me. I am literally and legally a different person than I was before. But not only were you completely severed from your old life, you were given a new life in your adopted family. You took on the family name. You now enjoyed all the honor and dignity of 
the noblest members of the family. All the honor and the glory that they had earned for your family now belonged to you. And as you looked out your window and you gazed on the vineyards and the farms and the estates, you'd reflect that one day all of this wealth would now pass on to you. In the meantime, you came under the authority of your new father. He now owned all your property. He controlled all your relationships and had the right to discipline you. But as your father, he also took on total responsibility for your support your li- and, and liability for your actions. You're now just as much a son as if you had been born one. No distinction between a natural and an adopted son. And this, in a nutshell, is what adoption meant under Roman law, right? And this is the image. This is the image. When Paul's looking, how can I describe what our new relationship is like with God? He looks at this legal um, situation of adoption under Roman law and says, yes, it's, it's kind of like this. Our old life, with all of its debts and its claims, is over now. We've been severed from the old guilt, the old sin, the old slavery, the old relationships. And in Christ, we are now brand new people, taken under the care of our Father God and expecting a full share in the inheritance one day. But, of course, adoption in the Bible completely transcends Roman adoption. Because God didn't adopt us because he lacked a worthy heir and was looking for some noble young man or some woman to take over the family line. God, of course, was perfectly satisfied with his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, perfectly pleased in the son. He had, he had the heir that he needed, and God had no need to search out other sons or daughters. Certainly not the kind of people that God actually has chosen for himself. Our adoption is out of God's sheer magnificent grace. Not because God needs it, but because we need it. You know, even even parents who adopt today, they tend to look for healthy, happy, innocent little babies, right? They have this dream of what it would be like to take this new person into their family. But when God adopts, he chooses the worst kind of characters. He chooses the child the babies with fetal alcohol syndrome, the little girl with cerebral palsy, the sullen 15-year-old who's been kicked out of every orphanage and foster home in the, in the state. 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God's, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And of course, all this grace of adoption comes to us through Jesus, the older brother. Now in Roman law, any son who was adopted into the family would be a threat to the natural children, right? Now they've got someone that they have to divide the inheritance with. And a biological son would never, ever, ever have encouraged his father to adopt another child into the family let alone offer to be estranged from the family himself and to die in nakedness and shame on a cross in order to bring other heirs into the family. But of course, that is what Jesus has done for all of us. That's the miracle of adoption.
And our new status as sons and daughters means that we're now in a place of permanence and security in the family. Once a father adopted a son, he could no longer remove that son from the family. As Jesus says in John chapter 8, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. We have a permanent place in the family of God. And we no longer need to turn to the false idols of sex and greed that Paul describes in this chapter because we no longer need the intimacy and the security that they deceitfully hold out to us. And so the more deeply that we comprehend and enjoy what it means to be a son or a daughter of God, the less attractive sin is going to appear. So, marvelous as it is to have our status changed as God's adopted children, you might ask, okay, but that's like a legal thing. Aren't I still basically the same person on the inside? Even in Roman law, whatever the law might have said, legally speaking, it was still, you know, the same person. Yeah, on paper, I might have been taken out of the domain of darkness and sin, but how can I possibly imitate God if the devil is still basically my biological father, right? If I still belong to Adam. There was a documentary in 2012 called Hitler's Children. And the documentary followed people who were biological descendants of leading people in the Nazi regime from the Second World War, people from the inner circle around Hitler. And in the documentary, they described the horrible guilt and shame and responsibility of being, you know, the grandson or the nephew or the niece of someone like a Goering or a Himmler. You know, imagine what it would be like to learn that your grandfather was actually a war criminal who was responsible for, you know, engineering the Holocaust. And even changing your last name wouldn't really make you feel all that much better, would it? You'd still feel like, I've, I have a striking physical resemblance to this person, their blood runs in my veins, their genes are within me, and, you know, you'd wonder if the resemblance was just an external one, right? Do I carry on these evil characteristics of my ancestor? Am I the sort of person who would do these horrible things? Maybe we have the same question as Christians, right? Yeah, I'm grateful to have my outward status changed. Yes, I'm legally adopted as God's child, but what about who I am on the inside? What about my nature? Am I still biologically descended from the evil one? Am I still really the same old person with the same dark cravings I had before I became a Christian. And you know, some Christians would say, yeah, you basically are that person. They would say that even Christians are totally depraved, that they're incapable of truly pleasing God, that all your best attempts to obey God are just so deeply stained with sin that they deserve nothing but condemnation. And they say, you know, basically any attempt to please God is only going to end up in defeat and failure. So the best we can do is, you know, offer grace and forgiveness to your inevitable failure, but you're still basically going to be the same person. And maybe your defeat is, you know, your continual defeat is a good thing because it sends you back to the cross of Christ again and again. 
what kind of grace is it that only rescues us from punishment for sin without actually dealing with the power of sin in our lives? That's only half the gospel. A gospel where Jesus has died on the cross, but not a gospel where Jesus has actually risen from the dead. And yes, it's true that God is glorified when we run to the cross, when we sin, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father, but God is even more glorified when by the Holy Spirit, trusting in the, in the power and presence of Jesus, we put that sin to death and we, we become more like Jesus. And the good news is, and that we want to hammer away on this week, is that you are actually capable of pleasing God now. God has given you, his divine power has given you everything you need for a godly life. And God promises more to you than a life of unrelieved failure and defeat. God actually wants you and has provided for you to become like Jesus. You know, Paul tends to use the image of adoption when he talks about being brought into God's family. But the Apostle John uses the image of being born into God's family, right? This, this new birth from above, being born again. And, you know, we could go around and share our testimonies of how we came to Jesus, and all of us would have very different stories on the outside. But really, when it, we boil it down, here's what happened to, to every single person here. Holy Spirit removed your heart of stone, and he gave you a heart of flesh. Your eyes were open to the glory of Jesus and you embraced him as your Savior and Lord. We were changed on the inside. And this is the new covenant promise that Ezekiel talks about in chapter 36, verse 25 of his prophecy, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in the Old Covenant, they had the law written on tablets of stone, but it was always an external thing, right? And the people of Israel, if you've read through the Old Testament, ah, it's such a depressing It's so depressing slogging through the history of the people of Israel and the prophets calling them back to repentance again and again because they do continue to fail and to break God's covenant. God says, you know, this isn't isn't good enough. We need something more. We need a better, a new and better covenant. And this is going to involve not just forgiving people's sins, but actually changing them from the inside, giving them a soft heart of flesh that responds to God giving my children the Spirit, actually writing my law in their hearts so that they obey me out of their own desires. So we don't just have a new status through adoption. We have a new nature through regeneration, through being born again into God's family. And so now we are true children of God, not just as a legal fiction, we are true children of God who long to obey him and love to please their father from the heart. So, when we're talking about imitating God, 
we don't have to be afraid of that as though we're just inviting failure and defeat because we actually have a new, a new nature within us, right? The Holy Spirit has given us new hearts and we have the family traits of God within us genetically as Christians. And as I dug into the New Testament teaching on sonship, what it means to be a child of God, I was struck by how often it's linked to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, the whole point of Jesus' own Spirit-empowered ministry was to bring us into the same relationship that he enjoys with the Father. Jesus wants you to experience the very same sonship that he experiences with his Father. The same confidence, the same joy, the same love. Jesus has come to share that with all of us as God's children. And he promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans with an experience of childlessness and abandonment and left to fend for ourselves, right? But he would ask his Father to send another helper, another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we love all the gifts of the Spirit in our church, and we would love to see more manifestations of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and his gifts being poured out upon us. But all those miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy and healing, great as they are, they pale in significance to the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And I don't know where all of you are at in your life and in your walk with God, but I do know this is one of the deepest needs that we all have is to hear the Spirit bearing witness with our, with our spirit. Yes, I am a child of God. And now, because you are sons, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, God has, spent, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that cry of Abba, Father is so profound. And, and the word Abba, it doesn't mean daddy like you might have heard. But it was a term that expressed both warm intimacy and deep respect. Not only used by children to their fathers, but also by, rabbi, by, by students to their rabbis. But until Jesus, no one had ever dared to address God as Father in this way. I wonder if any of you know the one time in the Gospels where it's recorded that Jesus addressed God as Abba. No, no. Good guess, though. Yes, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. In other words, the moment of Jesus' deepest intimacy with the Father is also at the point of his most complete surrender to the Father's will, 
to the point of suffering and death on the cross. And the other two occurrences of this word Abba in the New Testament are in Galatians 5 and Romans 8. And both those passages speak of the Spirit prompting us to cry, Abba, Father. Notice, cry. Not say or pray or murmur, cry. And this Greek word for cry is kradzo. And uh, it was probably derived from the screech of a raven. You know, the way a crow, kradzo, kradzo. Right? It's a really loud word and it, it carries with it the sense of anguish and desperation. It's the same word used in the Gospels of the demon-possessed man, the man filled with the legion of, legions of demons who was wandering around the graveyards at night, cutting himself with stones and crying out in the night. This, this cry of anguish and despair and pain. It's the word used of the blind beggars at the side of the road, crying out because they're afraid that Jesus is going to pass them by. It's also the word used uh, of Peter when he climbs out of the boat and starts walking on the water and he begins to sink and he cries out in fear and desperation as he sinks beneath the cold, dark water. This is the Spirit's cry of Abba, Father, that he puts in the heart of God's suffering child, crying out in anguish and desperation for their father. And if there's someone here who's crying out to God from their own darkness, you need to know the Holy Spirit is with you, interceding with you, for you, with groans too deep for words, and witnessing to your sonship, to your daughtership. That's the spirit of adoption. The Father's precious gift so that in the lowest moments of our lives, when God seems the furthest away, when we might imagine that God has forgotten us or abandoned us, that even in those low points, God speaks to us. You are my beloved child. You are my son. You are my daughter. And as God's beloved children, we're called to demonstrate a new way of life, a new lifestyle. Going back to verse 1 again. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Live as children of light. Verse 8. Right? And it's in this new way of life that that's where the new status, the new nature, the new spirit that we have as God's children is actually worked out in the way that we live our lives day to day. And in these verses, Paul describes two sides of this new way of life as God's children. One side is love in verse 2, and then light in verse 8. Love and light. And it's actually really interesting that the two most important definitions of God in the New Testament in 1 John are that God is love, 1 John 4, verse 8, and God is light, 1 John 1, verse 5. So God is love and light. And as children of the Father of love and light, we are called to imitate, reflect, 
to actually live out love and light in our own lives. To begin to show the family resemblance in the choices we make, the relationships that we pursue, in everything we do. Living in love and light. Walk in love, verse 2. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We love because God has first loved us, right? Because we see the amazing grace and generosity and kindness of God in giving his son to die on the cross for us as the supreme expression of love and the greatest possible example of love. And as we stand at the foot of the cross and we begin to realize what it means to be loved, we also learn what it means to love and we are transformed and we begin to love others. And when our own hearts are filled to overflowing with the love of God, then that overflowing love can't help but overflow into other people and be expressed towards our brothers and sisters. It's just the nature of love. That's how love works. And since Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, a very unlovable person, an extremely tiresome and irritating person, right? I find myself, when I'm really living under the love of God, I find myself able in my own small ways to love the many irritating and unlovable people around me. And Jesus, as the expression of God's love, went out into the world to find unlovable people and to bring them into God's family. And now following Jesus, we go out into the highways and the hedges to find other needy people and compel them, invite them to come in as well into the family of God. Love is absolutely essential to following God. And if you read through 1 John, he says again and again, look, if you're not living in love, you don't know who God is. You have not experienced the love of God. And if you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, you're a complete stranger to the love of God. If we have no love in our hearts to other people, we're simply not children of God and we've never experienced the Holy Spirit. We also imitate God by being children of light. And we can see that um, you know, really from verses 3 to 10, but especially in verses um, 9 and 10 there. And all the filth and the greed and the darkness that Paul describes in those verses, all those evil practices and behaviors and desires that he describes, all those things, of course, are totally foreign and totally opposed to the character of our Father. Right? Like, we don't do those things in our family. We're not those kind of people, God says. Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And at one time, it's true, we were darkness, we were part of the darkness, but now, through Jesus, we are light in the Lord. And the light of God's holiness begins to actually shine out from our hearts. The radiance of God's beauty begins to, begins to spread forth and we begin to shine with the glory of God. And as we encounter the holiness of God, 
as we fall on our faces in worship before the overwhelming light of God's face. Our new nature is repulsed and disgusted by the things that we used to delight in, the things that we used to really enjoy. And when we fall into those sins, as unfortunately we, we, we sometimes do, we feel disgusted, we feel ashamed, we feel gross, and we want to turn quickly back to God. And we learn these new habits as we long for holiness and as we long to behold the face of God. You know, instead of sexual impurity, we pursue faithful love. Instead of greed and covetousness, we, we trust in God's provision and we share our possessions with those who are in need. And instead of foolish talk and dirty jokes, we lift up thanksgiving to God. You know, God's plan for all his children is that we would look like our older brother, Jesus, right? Who is himself the perfect image of the Father. Look again at verses 1 and 2. What Paul's really saying in those verses is that we follow God's example by following Jesus, right? Jesus, what does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to imitate this invisible God? Jesus has come to make the invisible God visible and to show us through his own life and his own sacrifice on the cross what it means to be like God. And so all of um, the Christian life is about being like Jesus, right? Following the example that our Savior has given us, who gave himself completely as a fragrant offering to God showing us what it means to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to our Creator. Romans 8.28 For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, we can be imitators of God We can actually imitate God. We can actually be like God because we are God's beloved children. We are really loved by God. Every single person sitting around here, God loves you and he delights in you. He's given you a new status through adoption, a new nature through regeneration. We have the spirit of adoption in our hearts reminding us that we are God's beloved children. And that's what helps us walk out our new life as imitators of God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.